Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. G.K. Chesterton said, The only way to discuss the social evil is to get at once to the social ideal. We can all see the national madness, but what is national sanity? What is wrong is that we do not ask what is right. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Who was Gilbert Keith Chesterton? What did he write? Why should we still read him today? Joining us today on the Wittenberg Hour for our discussion of G.K. Chesterton is Miss Eleanor Mummy. Ellie, great to have you back. It's great to be back. First, let's establish some context. Dale Alquist, the president of the Society of Gilbert Keith Chesterton, wrote a great article on Chesterton.org that gives us a look at Chesterton. The title of the article is great. Who is this guy and why haven't I heard of him? Honestly, I remember saying that very same thing, but more on that later. Alquist writes, I've heard the question more than once. It is asked by people who have just discovered, started to discover G.K. Chesterton. They have begun reading a Chesterton book or perhaps have seen an issue of Gilbert, or maybe they've only encountered a series of pithy quotations that marvelously articulate some forgotten bit of common sense. They ask the question with a mixture of wonder, gratitude, and resentment. They are amazed by what they have discovered. They are thankful to have discovered it, and they are almost angry that it has taken so long for them to make the discovery. Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who lived from 1874 to 1936, cannot be summed up in one sentence, nor in one paragraph. In fact, in spite of the fine biographies that have been written of him, he has never been captured between the covers of one book. But rather than waiting to separate the goats from the sheep, let's just come right out and say it. G.K. Chesterton was the best writer of the 20th century. He said something about everything and he said it better than anybody else. But he was no mere wordsmith. He was very good at expressing himself, but more importantly, he had something very good to express. The reason he was the greatest writer of the 20th century was because he was also the greatest thinker of the 20th century. Born in London, G.K. Chesterton was educated at St. Paul's, but never went to college. He went to art school. In 1900, he was asked to contribute a few magazine articles on art criticism and went on to become one of the most prolific writers of all time. He wrote 100 books, contributions to 200 more, hundreds of poems, including the epic Ballad of the White Horse, five plays, five novels, and some 200 short stories, including a popular series featuring the priest detective, Father Brown. And it goes on and on and on and talks about all of the different influences he had and who he influenced and who he took on. He says later, this absent-minded, overgrown elf of a man who laughed at his own jokes and amused children at birthday parties by catching buns in his mouth. This was the man who wrote a book called The Everlasting Man, which led a young atheist named C.S. Lewis to become a Christian. This was the man who wrote a novel called The Napoleon of Notting Hill, which inspired Michael Collins to lead a movement for Irish independence. This was the man who wrote an essay in the Illustrated London News that inspired Mohandas Gandhi to lead a movement to end British colonial rule in India. Chesterton debated many of the celebrated intellectuals of his time. George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, Bertrand Russell, Clarence Darrow. According to contemporary accounts, Chesterton usually emerged as the winner of these contests. However, the world has immortalized his opponents and forgotten Chesterton. And now we hear only one side of the argument, and we are enduring the legacies of socialism, relativism, materialism, and skepticism. Ironically, all of his opponents regarded Chesterton with the greatest affection. And George Bernard Shaw himself said, the world is not thankful enough for Chesterton. So let's talk Chesterton. 
One of the things that really strikes me about Chesterton and his writing is that he is um, overlooked. Forgotten is a little bit of a strong word. I think we hear his name a lot, but I think it's more the context and what he's actually written that has been neglected. So I read a lot of H.G. Wells, um, Bertrand Russell, and Shaw in school and throughout my studies um, with a literature degree and a philosophy degree, actually, on both sides. And was really love, like in love and very fascinated by all of those authors just because of the themes that they had and the way that they forced you to think about the world and especially the things that everyone was going through and dealing with and contemplating at the time that they were alive in their contemporary kind of history. And I always kind of knew that Chesterton was a part of that movement, a part of that moment. And it fascinated me that we never read him. And when that happens, I tend to be someone who gets more intrigued by the name you continually hear and never get to read than I am by the names I get to read. Uh, that is just part of what I find fascinating is, well, clearly if all of these people were reading Chesterton all the time and he was well-renowned at that time, there must be a reason or there must be something that that resulted in Chesterton not being read as frequently now as or not being regarded as highly now by the general populace or even known as well as them. And I actually think it probably is faith with Chesterton. You don't have to, as a secular audience, wrestle with concepts of faith with H.G. Wells or with Russell or with Shaw. And you really have to with Chesterton. And it's an undertone throughout his works. It's certainly not abrasive or aggressive or in your face. Um, those are really not words I would use to describe Chesterton in general, but it's still predominantly there. And that I think really does play into why we don't read him or study him as often because we hide from that. We don't want to deal with those topics. We can deal with a lot of huge topics like socialism. H.G. Wells plays with a lot of things that make you think and they're hard topics to work through and discuss, but none of them are in the ball camp of religion. You can still skirt away from the religious questions when you read H.G. Wells. And I think that's one of the poor reasons, but probably one of the big reasons that we don't read Chesterton as much and don't have it incorporated as often into our history classes, our philosophy classes, and our literature classes. Yeah, it's interesting just in terms of the other authors that were mentioned. A lot of times they point out what is wrong, but they never get to what is right. And I think that perhaps that's what Chesterton offers and lends to the discussion is that not only does he diagnose what's wrong, but he also prescribes the cure. And mm -hmm. it seems like when guys are willing to step out and prescribe the cure that they are both adored and hated. You know, I mean, in, in our own modern times, I think of a guy like Anthony Esselin, who, yep. you know, has very much, very much said, okay, guys, this is what's wrong. And here's what we need to do about it. And he's reviled in his own context in, in academia. And at the same time, he is adored by all of us out here going, yes, that's what I wanted to say, but, but I never said it, <laughs> you know, that, yep. that sort of, and, and I think to a certain extent, Chesterton does that too. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but so many times when I have read Chesterton works, I, I end up highlighting so much, you know, and, and going, <laughs> yes, that's exactly, yes, yes, preach it, you know, <laughs> that sort of a reaction, because what he's saying needs to be said, and it seems that no one is saying it. I would agree with that. And I also think 
It is an, a large way, um, certainly not only a modern problem, but it definitely is a modern problem, especially starting with the literary movements that arose when Chesterton was alive. The, the boundary that they were trying to push was giving all the answers. There was so much history of building a plot that kind of hides all of these elements from you and you learn along with the character, the traditional hero's journey. And then you result in coming back to the regular world with new knowledge and you have a new understanding and you've kind of had that full circle moment and you understand things better. And you, you, you and the characters have arrived and have this new knowledge to go out and live your life with. That was what was being challenged and played with in Chesterton's time. So a lot of the authors across the world are playing with that notion, especially beginning in Chesterton's time and moving forward. And of course, there's so much historical context for why you would stop necessarily giving that pleasant conclusion or that end result with all this revealed knowledge that you would bring back. But you have all these authors who are constantly playing with and constantly challenging that traditional mindset. So I think of with H.G. Wells, the book that I love most by H.G. Wells is The Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, I don't know if you've read that one. I have not. Um, so that one is brilliant. I would definitely recommend it. However, it by no means resolves. It's a very classic modern book. It gives you an end, but the end is more like the end of an ordeal in the classic hero's journey. Something happens and you realize that it happens and then the book ends. And so you don't get this new knowledge. You have to infer it for yourself. And mm -hmm. so you as a, a reader get this really wonderful um, and can be really, really brilliantly done opportunity to then live in a way that resolves that journey in your mind well. And modernists would also do this by purposefully ending their hero's journey or revealing the knowledge wrong so that you as a reader know that it's wrong and that you're frustrated by the fact that it's wrong or that they did it poorly because then it motivates in you the opportunity to do it better. And of course that fits the historical context of the early 20th century very well, focusing on when people disappoint you, when things go very poorly in the context of the world wars and hoping to inspire by disappointment betterness in the readers. And Chesterton doesn't do that. So that also plays, I think, very well into why Chesterton isn't read as often, is that when you are reading and teaching about modernist literature, the temptation is to only play into the people who follow the form of modernist literature and who do that. And Chesterton isn't. Chesterton is more focusing on that ability to still consistently bring hope and bring resolution and that kind of answer to the question throughout any novel to his readers directly, rather than making them ponder or search for it himself. And I think that's also important because you, you can do a lot with teaching your readers to infer it themselves, but sometimes you as a reader and often you as a reader need the author to give it to you because you're reading it, trying to find it. And that, that gift of new knowledge can be very helpful for going on in your life, whatever the context is. And I think Chesterton understood that. And that's one of the reasons he stands out against his contemporaries and is probably read less, is that if you are going to do a very short, broad overview of modernists, Chesterton doesn't illustrate what we think of modernists doing. And so it's harder to then teach a student what modernist literature looks like if Chesterton breaks the modernist tradition. Chesterton, whereas some of his contemporaries did not come from the assumption of absolute truth, Chesterton did. And you think about the, the context historically, the events that were going on in the world there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of, well, if we can engage in worldwide war, 
if we can engage in the annihilation of one another, then what is truth? There was a lot of struggle and a lot of the literature that came out of that time reflected that. And unfortunately, what was brought forward, and I think what we are dealing with today, even in the church, is instead of doctrine, we prefer opinion. And I think that stems from this idea of, well, if there's truth, then it's okay if you have yours. And, you know, it, it was setting up postmodernism and this idea that if there's truth, we can have it, but your truth might look different than my truth because, wow, how could this evil be done in the world and we come out on the other side? Mm -hmm. It's an, it's an interesting so. thing. It, yeah, it's an interesting thing to ponder. Okay, so favorite Chesterton writing. What say you, Ellie? What is your favorite Chesterton writing? I have been pondering this to try and decide what I think I would argue for. But I will, I will give you my answer with the caveat that I find it especially difficult to choose favorites across genres. So choosing a favorite Chesterton is hard because he writes books on religion and he writes nonfiction books and he writes fiction books. And so it's very hard for me to compare what almost feel like apples and oranges to me, even though they very much are the same voice. So I, I think I would say that The Man Who Was Thursday is my favorite Chesterton writing, but orthodoxy is always very, very close behind that for very different reasons. The Man Who Was Thursday, I think, is a phenomenal, just phenomenal novel. It also is very, very relevant to today and kind of all of the context of 2020. It does a great job of introducing educated and deeply thinking men into a world that is somewhat self-destructive and seeing what they do in the context of that and how their intellect does or does not aid them in preventing the destruction or interacting with that destruction in their universe. And I think it's brilliantly written. I also think we don't give Chesterton as a culture enough credit for the humor with which he can write. So the man who was Thursday is just really funny. There are lines almost every page that are just kind of thinly veiled, you know, caricatures of people that we've all met and moments that are silly or absurd. And he does a great job of laughing about it. And I do think you can tell from his writings that he just had a massive amount of joy with these things. So The Man Who Was Thursday, it feels as though the author who wrote it down is smiling the entire way through as if he is your father and you're young again. And you can tell your dad has some kind of a secret or he's teasing you in some way and you just have to figure out the punchline. You have to figure out what it is. That very much is how it feels to read a Chesterton novel, which I think is delightful because then you get very invested in it because you just want to figure out the joke. There's a twinkle in the author's eye and you want to figure out where it came from so that you can have the same thing. And I think that's very, very well done in The Man Who Was Thursday. But I also do love orthodoxy. I think orthodoxy is also one that we all should read and study and think about because it does a great job of arguing, not arguing, but describing religion in a very different way than we usually talk about religion. So give us kind of the back cover synopsis of the man who was Thursday. So if our if our listeners are pondering, okay, should I should I read that? It sounds intriguing. I like what I'm hearing. If they were to pick it up, what would the back cover 
say? Well, uh, I will caveat that with saying I usually am someone who thinks that reading a book when you know basic plot points is not a negative thing and can actually be very beneficial. So I've never minded knowing what happens at the end of a book before I start reading it. And I've never minded knowing the general plot points. And I think part of that comes from studying literature to the point that it literature starts referencing itself enough that you end up learning what's going to happen from other readings that you do. This book is one of the rare exceptions where I think the less you know about it, the more fun it is to read. Ah. But I will kind of preface it by saying The Man Who Was Thursday is about a man named Gabriel Syme who goes on a walk one evening and runs into another man who is a philosopher. They both are kind of philosophers. They love to talk about deep thoughts and about the politics of the day and about all of these different things. And they have very differing opinions. And so they end up kind of bantering back and forth, maybe for a half hour in the evening together. And basically that other man invites Syme to spend the evening with him to go on an adventure. And all the man says is, if you come along with me, I can promise you an adventure and I can promise you that I will convince you that what I think is right rather than what you think is right. My only caveat is that you are never allowed to tell anyone, no matter who it is, and especially not the police, what you experience for the next 12 hours overnight. And basically Gabriel Syme is like, I'm not gonna turn that opportunity down. I agree to do that, but ends up having his own secret. And so these two men are bound in secret to keep each other's vows to to themselves. Um, and both of them, I think, do a great job of showing respect for each other by doing that, where they're like, we're, we're going to keep these vows no matter what. And then they go on an adventure. And it is not the adventure that Syme originally expects. And then throughout the novel, you can tell there's just this continual switching of what you expect to happen and what actually happens on the adventure that they are sworn to secrecy on. And so it, it becomes a question of trust in that regard and also a great kind of philosophical adventure novel through this wild evening experience one night in London. And that would probably be my preface for that book. Well, if uh, every library in America is down one copy of <laughs> The Man Who Was Thursday, <laughs> we will have you to blame. <laughs> so that is that is fantastic. I know I want to read it now. So it is now on my it is now on my list. I want to read as much Chesterton as I can. Mm -hmm. I love Chesterton. I was really looking forward to to recording this episode with you because I know we've read different Chesterton. You know, we haven't both mm -hmm. read the same works by him. And so I was looking forward to adding to my list with recommendations. So that's, my, that's fantastic. My kind of last comment about The Man Who Was Thursday, of all of Chesterton that I've read so far, and I've read mostly nonfiction for Chesterton, but reading The Man Who Was Thursday, I think I would most be able to categorize the humor in the book uh, as akin to P.G. Wodehouse. I don't know if you've read P.G. Wodehouse, um, no. but he wrote Jeeves and Wooster and a lot of these really kind of classic British detective novels in like 1920s, 1930s kind of setting. And I mean, they're just hilarious. Very much the kind of peak British sense of humor. If you think of, you know, tipping your top hat and having a goofy, you know, constable doing something ridiculous. It It's very delightful. And I think it helps to bring down any of the more contemplative language. You know, there's philosophy discussions throughout this as the main character is a philosopher and a deep thinker, but it doesn't read densely. And I think it is especially accessible to students who grew up with C.S. Lewis, especially. We, we're very used to the kind of language 
Chesterton likes to use if you are used to the language that C.S. Lewis uses and that he'll use, especially I think in Narnia, but a little bit in Space Trilogy. It's probably more of the level of academia of Space Trilogy, but very accessible to, and often references places in London that I can remember reading in The Magician's Nephew and being referenced there as well. So I think that also helps it be, while there might be phrases that are confusing or just not what we normally think or contemplate about, there are enough references to things we're semi-familiar with and definitely enough humor to make it very fun to read. You had mentioned also orthodoxy. Tell us about orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is, it's so interesting because it's not a book written to convince other people to join the Christian faith and to become orthodox and to develop faith whatsoever. It's more just written to explain how he did, like Mm -hmm. how he became orthodox. And I think that's brilliant and very fascinating and often more convincing than anything else. I think he does a great job, first and foremost in orthodoxy, of explaining that Well, explaining away that idea that having faith is ignorance. He does a fantastic job of illustrating how understanding absolute truth and the truth of scripture actually frees up your intellect to be more intelligent and to understand things better. Whereas anything else, you kind of sabotage yourself and you have nothing else to cling to except the truths and the kind of beliefs that you've built up. If you have absolute truth and you have faith, it frees you up, whereas anything else ties you down. And that, I think, is a really fascinating way to think of things. I also, I mean, even just in the introduction to my copy of Orthodoxy, one of the quotes that I highlighted and that I have continually come back to in the last year is Chesterton's friendships routinely bridged political chasms and that makes him an exemplar for the present age of deepening political divisions that shatter civility with alarming regularity. His best friend, um, well no his brother um, Cecil disagreed with him on a lot of things and they, they knew how to argue with each other and they were very, very willing to do so even publicly and to debate together. And that I can definitely tell in Chesterton's language is that he has no ill will towards people who don't agree with him or don't hold the same position. In fact, he loves them and has a lot of joy having those discussions with him. And that I think is definitely one of the biggest worries of the day is that we aren't giving room to people to have friendships that cross political chasms. And so I love to read and hear from Chesterton's own mouth and about Chesterton, the value of being friends with and having conversations and arguments and debates with people who are not on the same side of the political chasm as you. So that also stands out to me in orthodoxy is it's kind of natural relevancy to what we are experiencing today and to some of the problems that we have today, I would say. It truly is a lost art in terms of being able to have a civil discussion, argument, debate with someone who does not agree with you. You know, it seems Mm -hmm. that there are just echo chambers, you know, all over the place. And I think that one of the strengths that Chesterton brings to us is exactly what you said, that he was able to, because he was able to have those dialogues back and forth with those with whom he did not agree, that actually strengthens his writing because he's able to anticipate what an opponent might think and beat yep. him to the punch. And yeah. and I think that that's something that 
if you have that skill, and that's classical rhetoric, right? Knowing your opponent, not only what he thinks, but who he is, that that allows you to strengthen your own argument as you endeavor to win him over instead of just yell at him, right? Yeah. I think, honestly, even even more kind of fundamentally of that, it, it, it allows you to argue. Because you can't argue if you don't have people with varying opinions to talk to. Otherwise, you are simply reiterating and reassuring yourself that what you think is right all of the time. And you're not actually having a debate or an argument with anyone. And actually, that, that has come up to me so many times when reading Orthodoxy um, that people, again, without absolute truth, without faith, are constantly arguing to convince themselves, whereas people with faith are able to argue for the sake of other people and in order to grow and learn more about them. So you are learning more about other people's opinions to try and understand them instead of constantly trying to convince yourself and everyone around you that your conclusion is the correct one without having the assurity of that in any way, shape or form. And that's something that that has fascinated me since I was in high school. I took logic with Pastor Broughton through Wittenberg Academy. I took, what was it, all three levels, all three trimesters of it. And that happened to be during a political cycle, one of the elections. And so one of the homework uh, assignments he had us do in that class was to analyze the political debates and to analyze them for logical arguments, logical fallacies, and just pull the whole thing out. And of course, what I learned from that is that a lot of times our modern political system isn't doing a debate. They're just simply stating their point again and again, rather than actually having a classical debate. And I remember being super fascinated by that in high school, but it has never stopped being something that just stands out to me. When people say they are debating, are willing to have a conversation about something, when really all they're willing to do is stand up and continually say what they think and not actually listen and interact in a debate with someone else. And so I think that is also a huge thing in orthodoxy and a huge benefit of Chesterton is that he is more than willing to actually enter a debate and loves to enter debates with people who disagree with him out of love for those people. He's not looking for a fight. He's not looking to further his own opinions or his own status. He he loves to debate and he loves to hear other people's thoughts and opinions, and then to express what he believes and express the truth that he knew and kind of see where the conversation goes and have that debate and an actual discourse. And I think we are actively as a culture fighting against real discourse. And so it's really wonderful to read Chesterton and his ways of discussing and encouraging actual conversation with people who don't agree with you. Do you have any quotes from orthodoxy? One of the ones that stood out to me, and I think really boils down what orthodoxy is about, is of all horrible religions, the most horrible is the worship of the God within, which I think plays into that quite a bit. And just really the idea that religion frees you from worshiping yourself or focusing on yourself so much that you are in a trap. And that I think stands out to me quite a bit. And I really love that. Okay. One of my biggest things I love about Chesterton is he has a chapter in orthodoxy called the ethics of Elfland, where he talks about magic. And I think that portrays so much of his character But he talks about how he as a child and even into his adulthood believes that there is some truth to the idea of magic. And he describes it in a way that is so matter of fact, as though it is silly that we put aside this concept. And I really, really love that entire chapter. I can't read the entire chapter to you, but I gladly would. And, you know, one of the things that I think really sticks out there and definitely was one that spoke to me and 
how I had felt as a child. And something that really stood out to me was his quote, I had always felt life first as a story. And if there is a story, there must be a storyteller. And so he kind of approaches it as him growing up with that belief about life, how it was like the stories he grew up with and therefore there must be a storyteller. And so it is not surprising then to understand that God, the father is the storyteller. So that I think is just, I mean, really brilliant. It talks about that idea of magic and ah, yes, my, I think my very favorite part and perhaps my favorite Chesterton passage of all time is when he talks about repetition and the idea that repetition, it can be a punishment in the classroom where you have to write, I will not cheat a hundred times oh, on sure. the blackboard. Yeah. But, and then he says, I speak here instead only of an emotion and of an emotion at once stubborn and subtle, but the repetition of in nature seemed sometimes to be an excited repetition like that of an angry schoolmaster saying the same thing over and over and over at me. The grass seemed signaling to me with all its fingers at once. The crowded stars seemed bent upon being understood. The sun would make me see him if he rose a thousand times. The reoccurrences of the universe rose to the maddening rhythm of an incantation, and I began to see an idea. And then he kind of continues on and says, the sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning, but the variation is due not to my activity, but my inaction. And kind of compares this children and how children are more, more understanding of this concept than we are as adults and that we can really learn from children because children have abounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike, it may be that God makes daisies every makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. And that really, really stood out to me. I loved that idea. He has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. And I really love that concept that everything being the same and all of these, you know, patterns that we can chase trace in science and language and really in the whole fabric of our universe is because God has never grown tired of them. He could very easily change all of it daily, but he never grows bored of his creation and he never sees the need to. And I think that's wonderful and really did change my perspective on the things around me because it seems silly to be bored of something just because it happens all the time or because it's common. So I think that's probably my favorite part of orthodoxy as a whole and certainly the part that has stuck with me the most and made me think the most. But how about you? What is what is your favorite Chesterton? I'm going to have to say, and I, I echo your sentiment that it's hard to choose one Chesterton across genres. I was actually introduced to Chesterton through Father Brown, the Father Brown Mysteries, because I was looking for something short that I could read before bed and get to the end of it so that I could sleep. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of silly, but I, I mm -hmm. needed, you know, I, I, I wanted to be able to read the whole thing and think, man, I've accomplished something and then sleep. So Father Brown, the Father Brown Mysteries introduced me to Chesterton and they were just, they were so intelligent. I, I, I like reading intelligent writing where you can tell that the author has a quick wit because if you have a quick wit, you, you, you think well, but you're also hilarious, right? And, yep, and so, absolutely. I, <laughs> so I saw both of those in the Father Brown mysteries and, and love them. And then I thought... Uh, and and to be honest, I 
I I think there is a TV show that is the Father Brown mysteries, maybe on PBS or something like that. I've never I've never watched the the TV show, but the the mysteries are great. You know, they're short. Mm-hmm. They they keep you guessing, and at the same time, when you get to the end, you feel like you've accomplished something. And mm-hmm. have you have you read the Father Brown mysteries at all? I have not. Okay, but yeah, it, it is very high on my list. Yeah, uh, so they're they're great, and and I and I really enjoyed them. But then, after having read uh, Father Brown, I I loved the way that Chesterton wrote, and so I wanted to read more. And I stumbled across What's Wrong with the World. And, and that's that's something that I say all the time. So I thought, oh well, this mm-hmm. this could be interesting. And I started reading, and even the introduction uh, was just absolutely fantastic. I, I want to read part of that to you. This is in the dedication to the book, and I know a lot of times people skip over the front matter in a book, but don't do that when you're reading Chesterton because it's just. Every, everything he writes is just golden. So this is the dedication for the book. Uh, it, it says, to C.F.G. Masterman, M.P. My dear Charles, I originally called this book, What is Wrong? And it would have satisfied your sardonic temper to note the number of social misunderstandings that arose from the use of the title. Many a mild lady visitor opened her eyes when I remarked casually, I have been doing what is wrong all this morning. And one minister of religion moved quite sharply in his chair when I told him, as he understood it, that I had to run upstairs and do what was wrong, but should be down again in a minute. Exactly of what occult vice they silently accused me, I cannot conjecture, but I know of what I accuse myself. And that is of having written a very shapeless and inadequate book and one quite unworthy to be dedicated to you. As far as literature goes, this book is what is wrong and no mistake. <laughs> so this is, you know, this is his dedication to this book that eventually he he re-entitled What's Wrong with the World. And uh, but, you know, as you had noted before, this this gleeful twinkle in his eye, you can totally see that when you're reading those words, you know, and if you know and if you know that Chesterton, you know, was five foot nine and 300 pounds, you know, when he <laughs> when he says things like that, I had to run upstairs and do what was wrong. You know, you have this image in your head and you're going, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that, that sort of thing. And so it's just it's it's great in what's wrong with the world when you're when you're reading it, you have this simultaneous uh, chuckle that's constantly going. Your face starts to hurt because you're smiling so much. And sometimes you just burst out laughing because you can't keep it in anymore. And at the same time, to kind of bring it into modern parlance, perhaps, he is, I don't know, Twitter bait, Instagram, you know, worthy. I don't mm-hmm. know. Constant quotes that are like, oh my word, that's so good. And if I was more into social media, I would probably make Instagram posts of of Chesterton quotes all the time because they're just Mm -hmm. that good. But one quote, aside from the dedication that I think really and, and kind of echoes to a certain extent, Chesterton is true to what he believes consistently throughout his writing. Um, and granted, I haven't read all of it, but from what I have read, there doesn't seem to be inconsistency from work to work. Mm-hmm. And there's a paragraph in chapter three of What's Wrong with the World. It goes like this. <clears throat> Chesterton says, some people do not like the word dogma. Fortunately, they are free and there is an alternative for them. There are two things, and two things only, for the human mind. A dogma and a prejudice. The Middle Ages were a rational epoch, an age of doctrine. Our age is, at its best, 
a poetical epic, an age of prejudice. A doctrine is a definite point. A prejudice is a direction. That an ox may be eaten while a man should not be eaten is a doctrine. That as little as possible of anything should be eaten is a prejudice, which is also sometimes called an ideal. And I think that when we read Chesterton, that we have those moments all the time. He's so very poignant in the way Mm -hmm. that he declares truth and allows us to think about things in a way that either, as we were talking before, we, we wish that we had been the one who had said it that way. You know, because that's what Mm -hmm. we think. Or we read Chesterton and we go, oh, yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about that. You know, like we haven't quite sorted some of these things out in our own mind. And Chesterton somehow brings clarity to the confusion that exists within our our own selves. Mm hmm. Yeah, he, he's very consistent. You know, that, that could easily be a quote from Orthodoxy or from his other writings. But yeah, he, he really does have a very consistent tone and he does a great job of making you think. Chesterton is like my go-to if I, if I am just, I'm, I'm bored or I want something to think about where I don't have something that is consuming my thoughts or that fills my thoughts and that I want to muse upon when I'm driving in the car or sitting and waiting for my order at a a shop or something. Chesterton is the one I pick up because I know that even if I read a chapter, I'll have something I'll think about for like two weeks afterward at least. Right. And so that I think is just, I mean, it's invaluable to have someone that you know you can rely on and lean on every time you need a thought. Um, Yeah, he has one right for you. You find, and I found this when I was, and and still am, reading a lot of Richard M. Weaver, that Mm -hmm. he kind of has that same effect, that you read Richard M. Weaver or you read G.K. Chesterton, and then all of a sudden you find things applying to whatever you've been reading. It becomes so relevant and timely in terms of how what, what you're reading, even though it was written a hundred years ago or, or whatever the case may be that mm-hmm. it, it still speaks very clearly and is certainly what we need for today in terms of being able to process everything. Absolutely. So why Chesterton? We've glanced at this and, and brushed up against it as we've been going back and forth here, but in your estimation, why does his writing still matter and why should it still be read? I think there's definitely, and we've definitely t- t- touched on this, the argument and the obvious point that in part Chesterton should be read because he will make you think and he will give you more understanding of how to have those arguments and debates with people that disagree with you. And he will make you more open to that. I think he he teaches you incredibly gently in his nonfiction especially, but also in his fiction, to debate and interact kindly, but with people who you disagree with. And he teaches you how to do that with kind of grace and with respect for those people but to delight in doing that and do it well. And that probably is, that leads me to the greatest reason I think we need to read Chesterton specifically, is that although there are other authors who can teach you that debate and who can teach you to have those dialogues and who can provide you with lots of things to think about and things to ponder, there is very few, if if any, other author I can think of who does so with as much joy. You don't read Chesterton and feel weighed down by the weight of the universe. You feel kind of delighted and joyous. He's one of the most joyous authors 
you can read. And I say that very literally in that the delight of reading multiple things by the same author and in allowing yourself to let the author speak to you is that you end up reading the book feeling like the author is very present and as though you know the author through the work. And with Chesterton, it genuinely feels like you have this man, this five foot nine man who is like roly poly, almost Pooh Bear shaped, sitting in the room chuckling, enjoying you listening and reading his book. It's like he's just there chuckling and smiling at you with a twinkle in his eye, waiting for you to be in on the joke and waiting for you to kind of smile and laugh and interact with it. That's just how it feels to read a Chesterton novel. It makes you refocus on the joy, even in those debates and those disagreements. He's not talking about light topics. He's talking about very heavy topics, but he does so with such concrete joy that it's very uplifting for us as readers. And so I think that would be my number one argument for Chesterton is that he's brilliant and educated and very, very thought provoking, but he is so joyful and just delightful. That's an excellent point. And as you were making that point, I was standing here nodding and smiling. So <laughs> so if that's not evidence of, of the truth of that, I think that our listeners will be very edified if they pick up Chesterton and and give him a chance or give him a, a, another read. You know, maybe they've yes. they've read Orthodoxy, but they haven't read What's Wrong with the World. Or maybe they've read Father Brown, but they've never read The Man Who Was Thursday. And mm -hmm. hopefully we've we've given everyone as we're headed into fall and the the time of great opportunity to read on chilly days and evenings mm -hmm. having an opportunity to either explore further or to discover for the first time Gilbert Keith Chesterton. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to discussing more books with you in the future. Absolutely. It is always a delight. And I honestly feel recording this and discussing with this with you, like I am not recommending an author to every person listening to this, but introducing a friend. And that is always, I think, a very unique way of complimenting an author. So I hope you all are willing to read and meet G.K. Chesterton because he is a delight and he is very much will feel like a companion and a friend of yours. And I look forward to discussing other books very soon. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.